that you're going to open the eyes of our understanding. And Lord, many times as we hear your word, sometimes it's a message that encourages us, it comforts us, it instructs us, it challenges us, corrects us. Lord, as a matter of fact, I was reading this morning in my own quiet time with you, and you challenged even myself, Lord, that, you know, not, if, if not to take offense at you and your word. Lord, help us not to do that. Help us to hear what you're saying because I believe in my heart that you're the most loving, gracious, kind, considerate, compassionate person and what you have in store for every one of our lives is good. You have our good in mind and when we rebel against that, we suffer. And so I pray today as we hear your words, Lord, help us to understand what happens when we choose not to embrace the truth, when we choose not to apply the truth in our life. Help us to realize that there are things and consequences that come into our life that you just allow to happen that eventually affect us in a very negative way. So I just pray today, my desire, my longing, your desire, your longing is that we would embrace the truth, we would walk with you, we would experience the joy and the love and the life that you promise us, Lord. So help us to hear the Holy Spirit, and the word of the Lord today and respond in a powerfully healthy way in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. Amen, you may be seated. You know, there's an old proverb. I've never heard of it before, but I read it and I, I agree with it because I, I really love history. And it goes like this. Dwell on the past and you'll lose an eye. In other words, you just can't camp in the past, right? But if you forget the past you'll lose both eyes. In other words, you'll be blind to what's about to happen. And one of the great tragedies so often is that we fail to learn from the past. Isn't that true? And so often we just tend to repeat tragic mistakes that if we'd have known history, we probably would have avoided those things and we would have not experienced those negative things in our lives. How many would rather learn from other people's mistakes? I got my hand up, you know. I'd rather not have to learn from every single mistake in life. Anybody up for that? Because that's very difficult and painful and heartbreaking. So I want to avoid that as much as possible. So I do want to learn. Now, some of you may be acquainted with a man by the name of Francis Schaeffer. Francis Schaeffer um, was a brilliant uh, philosopher and he was a theologian. And he wrote a book uh, and actually published it in 1976. So that was after 40 years of extensive research. And he was actually, the book was entitled, How Shall We Then Live? The Rise and the Decline of Western Thought and Culture. Isn't that kind of a powerful statement? Now, we've gone way beyond 1976. But he said there was something that was he could see that was eroding the culture in which we live in, our culture, first century world culture. And he could see this, and he began to explore it. And he actually not only wrote the book, he did a 10-part series, a documentary series explaining how that comes about. And one of the reasons, he says, is that when we embrace the wrong values, we end up surrendering willfully our freedoms. And we don't even realize it, but every day we're losing freedoms in our country. We're losing freedoms in our lives if we're not careful to understand what the truth is. See, because we've, we've marginalized truth today, by the way. And Amy did a phenomenal job last week of talking about that, how, you know, we don't even know if there is such a thing as truth. And yet Jesus says, I am the truth. And we were reminded that Jesus came to testify of the truth. 
But I'm going to look at Paul's uh, letter to the Romans in chapter 1 where he talks about what happens when a people suppress the truth and what the outcomes are as a result of that. He says, in our, our society is eroding and will ultimately follow all previous civilizations that eventually die. How many, that's kind of a shocking statement. How many go, I don't really want to hear this, you know. I don't really want to find out how we actually deteriorate. You know, I don't want to, st- I don't want to have an, auto, uh, uh, an autopsy, autopsy on the culture in which we're living in. And yet, if we're not careful, we will get there very quickly. And the only reason I'm bringing it up, you know, for some of us, we won't be here too much longer. But, you know, when I think about my children and grandchildren, they're going to inherit the decisions that we made and they're going to suffer deeply as a result of some of the poor decisions that we've made as a culture, and we'll see that. He points out that earlier Christian values were surrendered because a majority consensus has been building. And I'll tell you how uh, your minds are being shaped every single day. Do you realize now, art, he basically talked, the forerunners are usually musicians and artists, and then we have the movies, and then eventually mass media, and, the, uh, uh, and ultimately even unbiblical theology, which tends to give us false understanding as to the nature of who God is. All of these things are happening all the time. And so every day, you're getting messaging coming at you, whether you believe it or not. You're getting advertising coming at you. You're getting, you know, the movies all have values in them. I read novels. I, you know, I, I sit down and I watch and I go, this is this viewpoint. This is this philosophy. This is this idea. And these are all being propagated at us continuously. And we're not even aware of it half the time. I remember years ago as a youth pastor, uh, I did a little thing with our high school youth group. I made a decision. I taught them all the basic philosophical ideologies, there was a number of them, Greek philosophical ideologies, Hinduism, different religious philosophies, and then I put a show on TV and I said, I want you to identify every one of these philosophies. I said, don't just listen to the storyline, and at the end, we kept stopping the show, and I kept pointing out, this is this philosophy, and they were guessing at which this was, and we, went, we actually literally terrorized one of the most popular sitcoms of the time. And the kids were like stunned. They couldn't believe how much stuff was being taught to them, unknowing to them. And so this is happening to us all the time. We just don't even realize it, you know. We think, oh, I've never drank the Kool-Aid. I'm telling you, we're drinking Kool-Aid every day. And so we don't even realize it. And so that's what he's kind of pointing out. And so what, what has replaced Christian values? Because, you know, back in the day, when you look at our country, we even have scriptures inscribed on stone in our parliament buildings We have so far moved away from those concepts so now we have developed a new consensus in our culture today. We have a whole different value system and this is what Francis Schaeffer described uh, as the new value system and it's really been dominant for, I would say, 70, 80 years. So this is not an overnight thing. And the two values are personal peace and affluence or prosperity. And so he says, what he means by these, he says, personal peace means just to be let alone, not to be troubled by the troubles of other people, whether across the world or across the city, to live one's life with minimal possibilities of being personally disturbed. In other words, the philosophy is live and let live. Isn't that kind of our philosophy? You know, I'll do my thing, you do your thing, we all get along with each other. And it just seems to be we've embraced that philosophy of life. And then he goes on. He also, personal peace means wanting to have my personal life pattern undisturbed in my lifetime regardless of what the results will be in the lifetimes of my children and grandchildren. In other words, yeah, I can see that there's some problems, but I don't want to really get involved in it because I'm going to skip out of here anyways, and so it won't be my problem. 
But what I'm doing is handing on a legacy of all kinds of problems. And so, I mean, we could talk about, you know, I could just talk about financial debt, for example. I mean, you know, we're a culture that just racks up financial debt. Who's going to end up paying for this? And, you know, I know that there's certain economies that believe that you can just keep racking up financial debt. But what begins to happen is you have spiraling inflation. And that means people then really begin to suffer in a powerful way. Affluent means an overwhelming and ever-increasing prosperity, a life made up of things, things, and more things, a success judged by an ever higher level of material abundance. And so most of our decision-making today is based on how is this going to affect me economically. And as long as it doesn't touch my pocketbook and it doesn't disturb my way of life, then I'll be content. I don't care who's in charge, right? I'll just vote whoever's in that will continue to maintain a good minimum status quo. And that's the way we've been rolling now for a long time. And so we have quietly and purposely moved away from being a God-centered culture to a man-centered culture. Anybody want to dispute that? I don't think there's any arguments there. I think we all recognize that, you know, that God has been waylaid, captured, thrown to the side, and basically, you know, we're, we're you know, very scientific, technological, medically advanced culture. We have all the answers kind of things. And yet there's always those little seeping doubts of despair that come into our life because we see things like coronaviruses and now they're growing. And, you know, and of course, I, I'm a history nut, you know, and I, I just did a, a, a listened to a series of lectures on what happened to the uh, bubonic plague in the Middle Ages and how half of Europe died underneath that. And it took 300 years for their uh, population to recover. So I'm just sitting here thinking, you know, we're living in some very fragile moments. And I think most of us, we just want to pretend it's not happening. But then every once in a while, it just begins to affect our personal lives. And what happened the other day was, the, you know, the economy is crashing now. I mean, stock markets are falling. Uh, I mean, travel may be curtailed. We're looking at even events like gathering together like this may be put on hold because we're getting really concerned about what's going to happen. We don't want virus to spread and all the rest of it. So that's when we start paying attention, when it affects our personal prosperity, and it's going to affect the way we live our lives. There's always those who try and challenge the direction of the culture. I remember best-selling novelist from another generation, Taylor Caldwell. I don't know if you've ever read anything by her. Uh, she wrote a book on St. Luke, and I'm sitting here reading this book, and it was published in the 1950s, and I'm going, wow. You know, it's almost like she's prophetic or she's, you know, she's, I mean, extremely articulate person. I mean, the stuff we write today is nothing compared to what was written. I'm, I'm just, I'm sorry to tell you, it's just the way it works. She says this in her story. It's just a novel, but she brings out some amazing ideas. And that's what I'm telling you, how different vehicles bring information to us. And she writes this, he who looks to man for his meaning in life looks to a delusion. For men are nothing except in their relationship to God. Wow, what a powerful statement, isn't it? She goes on to say, do not center your heart upon mankind, for it is a shimmera, a mirage. They have been those who have glorified man, have elevated humanity as an absolute in itself, and they vehemently declare man to be valuable only in his external manifestations. This teaching has reached almost all civilized countries to their disaster. For law and justice and mercy and kindness are not rooted in men but in God, and without him they cannot truly exist. Him who made them, man is only the reciprocal of grace, not grace itself. In other words, you know, as much as and how amazing humanity is and how 
incredible we are in our creative geniuses. All of that is a gift from God, folks. God is the one who we've been made in his image. He's given us that ability to create and do all of these things. But eventually, civilizations all are lost and destroyed. And I've had the privilege of traveling around the world looking at ancient civilizations that are no more. And the question always arises, what happened to them? And the answer is just the same thing. There's an internal internal destructive force that begins to go at work in every civilization. And we're actually experiencing that right now. And that's what Francis Schaeffer was pointing out to, to us. So I want to take a look at some biblical truth here. And the Apostle Paul is actually talking about it in Romans chapter 1. We're going to turn there this morning and beginning in verse 16. One of the great, probably one of the great declarations of truth that brings absolute freedom is found in verse 16 where Paul says there, and if you turn in your Bibles, that's the chapter we're going to look at this morning, Romans 1. Everyone goes, oh, that's a heavy chapter, Pastor. I go, yeah, I know. But we're going to look at it. Romans chapter 1, verse 16, he says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why would he even have to say that? Why would we even be considered to be ashamed? It's freedom, it's wonderful, it's glorious. And yet we get a sense, because Paul himself was so deeply persecuted, right, and I'm going to say something to us right now. As we continue the journey through our history and our nation, there's going to be a lot of people that are going to try to shame us because of the gospel. It's coming, and I think you need to be aware of that. He goes, I'm not ashamed of it. You know why I'm not ashamed of it? It is the power of God unto salvation. It actually brings freedom into people's lives. It's, it's the power that sets people free from the greatest threat of humanity, and that's our own personal sin. It can deliver us from sin. It can set us free from the powers of darkness. It gives us life in a realm of death. And yet we see a culture today embracing death. Everything about it, from abortion to euthanasia, I mean, on and on we go. I know we, I get people all excited here. Don't get offended. I'm just the messenger this morning. I'm just pointing out to you certain truths, you know. This is a culture of death. And we're embracing death more and more and more. And it's really sad. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. He says, it's salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the non-Jew, the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. So the gospel is revealing something about who God is and what is right and how to be in a right relationship with him. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last. In other words, you and I don't earn our salvation. It's a gift from God. It comes because we're trusting and believing in him. And then we continue to live out this life by continuing to trust and believe in him. Isn't that beautiful? So the beginning of it is by faith in God. And all the way through it is by faith in God. And the end of it is by faith in God. We're just trusting God all the way through the journey. And this is the victory, even our faith, that we put our trust in God. In Romans 1.17, we read that this righteousness from God is being revealed. And scholar F.F. Bruce says, righteousness is to the Hebrew not so much a moral quality as a legal status. Interesting. It's forensic. It means to be in the right. God is righteous, and only those who are in a right relationship to God and his law can be, sit, can, can be considered in the right. So you and I can declare people in the right, but God is the ultimate judge, and he's going to decide who's in the right. And I don't know about you, but I want God's declaration in my life, and I want God's declaration in your life that we're right with him, and that we only can be right in him because we've put our trust in him. Our trust is in him and not in ourselves. This righteousness 
is through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so there's no other way for us to have a right relationship with God except for by trusting in Jesus. And when you read the gospels, that's what you're getting. Jesus is revealing to us who he really is. He's actually God in the flesh and he's asking us to follow him and put our trust in him and he'll lead us... as, as we do that, we receive a gift called eternal life. It's a quality of life. It's an abundant life. It's beautiful. Bruce goes on to say this. As things are, human beings as a whole are in the wrong with God, and his wrath is revealed against them. That's interesting. This is actually a moral law in life that men and women are left to the consequences of their own freely chosen course of action. So one of the things that God did when he created humanity was he gave us In his image, he gave us mind, emotion, and he gave us a will. And he gave us the ability to choose. And so we can choose to do what's right, or we can choose to do what's wrong. But how many know our choices always have consequences? We're trying to live in a culture where we're telling people there are no consequences. Folks, that is a great big lie. And most of us know that if I eat all the wrong foods, it's probably going to affect me in the wrong way. You know, if I, if I violate my body and I abuse it and I don't take care of myself and I don't get the proper rest, I'm going to suffer for that. It's just the way it works. There's a consequence to my actions. And so, you know, you can, you can have somebody tell you, well, that's somebody else's fault for not putting you to bed on time. But eventually we got to grow up. You know, we got to make good decisions. We have to discipline ourselves, right? Yeah. So then he goes on to say here, and unless this tendency is reversed by divine grace, their situation goes from bad to worse. And so what God wants to do in our lives is stop us before we totally destroy ourselves, okay? He gives us a choice. He says, choose my way. This is the way of life. But at the end of the day, I've noticed something. God never stops us from sinning. How many have kind of discovered it? He never goes, oops, I'm not going to let you do that. Now, I think he sometimes will bring people into our lives and say, hey, what are you doing there? You know, he'll try to encourage us to do the right thing. But ultimately, we have the choice. And God is always trying to break in and stop us from self-destruction. But hard sometimes because we're pretty willful. You know, it's like that little kid. I'm just going to do the wrong thing no matter what you say, right? Yeah, And some of us have never grown up. We're still those little kids doing the wrong thing. Romans chapter 1, verse 18 says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people. And here's where I get my sermon. Who suppress the truth. How? By their wickedness. Now, I don't know. I put down this little statement. Why does this verse instinctively turn us off? The wrath of God. Isn't that true? A lot of people go, I don't want to hear this. Pastor, tell me about the love of God. Tell me about the forgiveness, the goodness. Yes, those are all true. But you know what? If I, we cannot talk about the Bible correctly without talking about the wrath of God. Do you realize that? Okay. Because I think why we instinctively get turned off by that, because when we think of anger or wrath, we think of someone intimidating us with that emotion. Isn't that true? It's kind of an intimidating thing. And, you know, here's God. He's just a big bully up in heaven. You know, he's going to make you do what's right. I mean, that kind of comes with people's minds. You know, this is a bully response, right? I'm going to paint a different picture of what the wrath of God, how I perceive it to be and from Scripture. And this is what I think. God only acts out of his character. How many go, that's true? You know, he is just. And when he sees injustice, he gets angry. Now, how many here... Has anybody ever been angry when you saw somebody poorly treated and you got upset because you're going, what's going on there? 
That's not fair. Here's this big person bullying this little person. Don't you feel, how many here get a little concerned about that? Well, that's good. That's normal. That's what God feels. He gets excited about injustice when people are abused, when people are manipulated, when people are exploited, when people are oppressed. God gets uptight about that stuff. That's what I need to understand. God gets upset about when we hurt one another. And how do we hurt each other? What's, what's driving the hurt is that we are not, we're not loving that person. We are actually sinning against that person. And then for God gets upset about that. Now, here's what you need to know. In spite of all of that, I like this, God is long-suffering, wanting even the perpetrator to repent and be transformed. So you know what God does? Even though there's the bully, God doesn't just go, zap the bully. You know what I mean? I mean, that's, that's kind of our approach. Just, if I was big enough, I'd just zap that dude, right? But God comes along and goes, hold, let's stop here. And he'll pull them aside and he'll minister grace to the wounded person and he'll take the bully aside and go, what in the world's going on in your life? And try to bring them to their senses and help them to come to a recognition that what they're doing is evil and sinful. And if they have a real encounter with God and they can be transformed, it'll change their whole attitude towards the person they're hurting. That's what God is trying to do in our lives. And so a lot of times this takes time and God is long suffering and people think, well, you know, because God's not doing anything about a lot of this evil evil. He just doesn't care about these things. And the reality is, yeah, he cares about them, but he's trying to win the person who's even the abused abuser. So he's looking for restitution and reconciliation, but when that fails to happen, he ultimately allows the consequence of sin to have the full impact on that person's life. He just finally says, okay, if you're not going to listen, I'll just let you do your thing. And what happens then is not a good thing for the person. So it's interesting here in the first chapter of Romans how God brings about his judgment against all the people who are unlike him. To be unlike God means to be not loving. Did you know that? Because God is love. And if I'm not like God, how can I be a loving person? Ooh, I probably offended some people by just by stating that. You know, I don't know God, and I'm still a loving person. No, your, your love is limited. When I talk about love, I'm talking about unconditional love. Do you love people, even the people that are your enemies? You see, that's the kind of love I'm talking about. Do you love people when they do something to hurt you? Do you still love people unconditionally? See, we're talking about a different element or quality of love, and that's what God's love is like. So here are given some reasons why we do what's wrong. Oh, I, here's what I was going to say. Why, why people don't always connect the dots between sin and judgment is that God is allowing time for people to repent. And here we see the reason why we do what is wrong or what is evil. It's because we're suppressing the truth or their knowledge about God. We're just pushing it down. We don't want to hear the stuff. And now we're going to see what happens when we suppress the truth. We lose our freedom or our freedoms. It starts by what we reject and then leads to what we succumb to and embrace as human beings. When we refuse to acknowledge God, because we're worshipers, we become idolaters. In other words, if I don't put God first in my life, I'm gonna put something first in my life. And generally, what our culture puts first in their lives are themselves. Yeah. Isn't that true? Yeah, that's the first step. But then if we can't really depend on ourselves, then we go find something that we can kind of put our confidence in. Whatever that is, it becomes that which we're worshiping. And then we'll see what happens to the world as we keep doing the wrong thing. It moves to a certain condition. So, I, you know... These wrong ideas about God did not arise innocently. The knowledge of the true God is accessible, or was accessible, 
is accessible, I'd say, but men and women close their minds to it. So I'm going to take a look today at the three consequences of suppressing the truth. And the first one is simply wrong thinking. When we suppress the truth, our thinking goes, we just, we get out of whack. We don't think straight. We replace the truth with what is left. You either believe the truth or you believe a lie. And God says, if you don't want to believe the truth, I'll even send you a lie. It's a test. So one of the things I think that we need to get motivated about is say, I want to be a lover of the truth. You know, I want to know the truth. I want to know what's real. I want to know what's authentic. I want to know the real thing. And there's something inside of us that wants to do that. And so God's word clearly states that all human beings are without excuse. Whoa, let's take a look at it. Let me just read a little further down here. It says, since, verse 19, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them, but since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. So in other words, what God is basically saying is, look, you, you have to come to terms with how did everything get here? And let me just point out something. You know, I, you can say, well, I believe in evolution or whatever. I'm not even going down that track. What I'm going to state is simply this. However God created this world, we know that there's a designer behind it. This is far too complicated for random evolving. And, you know, you study DNA. Listen, all of this stuff is highly designed. And now even scientists, a lot of scientists are Christians. A lot of them will talk about it. If they're not, they're talking about there's an intelligent designer behind all of the stuff. It's too complicated. You know, our bodies are fascinating and highly complicated. So everything about this world is making a declaration that there's someone greater than ourselves who brought this all into being. And so basically God is saying, I've revealed myself to humanity, and so if you deny what I've showed you, it's, you're without excuse. You have no reason not to believe in me. That's what he's arguing here, and I agree with him. Now, you may be taught that there's no God, but something inside of us, you know, the very fact that there's even a concept of morality or there's a concept of right and wrong, where do we get these ideas from? You know, where does this stuff come from? I believe it comes from the designer. He puts it right inside of us. It's there. So God has revealed himself by his creation. Uh, so how does God get lost in the shuffle? That's a great question. And I think we get an answer here in verse 21. This is how God gets lost in the shuffle, not only in our culture, but I would even argue in our own personal lives. Look what it says. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. So I look here and I say, oh, look at this. There's two attitudes that, uh, that are developing here. The Apostle Paul basically says they didn't glorify him as God. What does it mean to glorify God as God? Isn't that a great question? Because I don't think we always ask questions when we're reading the Bible, but I'm asking it now. And I think Paul gives us this answer in Corinthians. He said, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. What is he saying? He's saying that everything about your life should be lived to bring honor and glory to God, okay? Everything, the way you eat, the way you drink, the way you work, the way you sleep, how you take care of your body, how you don't take care of your body, all of these things are gonna glorify God. It's very powerful. And then Paul goes on to say, the mo so the motivating principle, what he's saying is in our life should be to do one thing. I'm not living for myself. That's one of the true signs of a Christian. 
I stopped living for myself and I started living for Christ. I became a follower of his. And that's why God says, give me your heart. Give me your life. Give me the essence of who you are. Follow me with all of your heart. Do what I'm telling you to do. And listen, you're going to discover what real living is. And it almost seems like you're committing suicide in one way, you know? I'm giving up everything about my dreams, my hopes, aspirations, and all the rest of it. And I'm saying, you know what? Those are paltry dreams, hopes, and aspirations. Just wait till you see the ones God's got for you. They're way bigger, way greater, way beyond your scope of imagination. Why don't you just surrender your life to God and say, okay, God, let's go on the journey together. Can I declare to you, it's the great adventure. You're going to be on a great adventure with God. It's, it gets really interesting. So then he goes on here. Uh, out of this attitude, I think, arises the second one that we get in trouble with. And it says, nor gave thanks to him. So I just wrote down, am I a thankful person? And I've discovered one thing in my life. When I am not in a state of gratitude and contentment, I'm in the wrong space. How's that? And I think sometimes as Christians, we read this passage and go, yeah, these guys in the world, they're not thankful, blah, blah, blah. And meanwhile, we're grumping and complaining. You know, we're like the Israelites in the wilderness, right? Well, this is what Paul writes in Philippians. He says, do everything without grumbling or arguing. You don't have to have your way. It's getting real. I knew this sermon would not get a lot of shouts. I, already, I was prepared for this this morning. I, I knew this was going to be a little heavy, but he says, uh, so that you may be blameless and pure and children of God without fault in a what? A warped and depraved generation. Boy, Paul makes some strong assessment here. He says, yeah, the world's warped. It's depraved. They're, they're grumblers. They're always upset. You can never, it's hard to satisfy them. But when you're a child of Jesus, you're just going, God loves me. I'm his kid. He's taking care of me. Wow, look how good my life is. Look how good he's watching over me. Father, I got my hand in your hand. I'm not letting go. You're not letting go. This is awesome. Let's just do it together. And then he says, then you're going to start shining like stars in the sky. How many notice when it's dark outside, that's when you see the stars the best? How many get it that our world is getting darker? I'm going to let my little light shine, Right? <laughs> You're a superstar for God, right? You're letting your light shine so people can see there's something different about your life, you know? But the consequence of an unthankful heart is that our thinking becomes futile. It becomes without value. It's empty. Actually, it's worse than that. It says it has no weight, no substance. And when we're not filled with gratitude towards God, that is a very dangerous condition mentally. Oh. Pastor, you're not a psychologist. No, I know I'm a theologian. And I'm just pointing out to you, good psychology and good theology go together. Dale Galloway in his book on attitudes points out that ingratitude is one of the basic sins of the Bible. Ingratitude, he says, uh, precedes every rebellion, uh, preceded even rebellion in Adam and Eve. Had they been grateful for all of God's provision and gifts, they would not have rebelled against the giver of life. Yes, ingratitude is one of the worst sins because it opens the door to all the other sins. Do you know it's hard to tempt somebody who's satisfied? But when we're not satisfied, we're open to temptation. You should write that one down. That's a, that's a good line. Okay. Verse 22, it goes on to say, although they claim to be wise, what happens? What does it say in verse 23? They became fools. Now, how many here have been listening to my series on Proverbs? What's the two main words that stand out in the book of Proverbs? And we're going to see it as I continue on in the series. You're either wise or you're a fool. That word fool, it doesn't mean you're not intelligent. It just means that you're morally deficient. 
And so what happens is rather than fearing God and doing what's right, you end up becoming morally deficient and you do what's wrong. You make terrible choices. You don't understand why you're experiencing these terrible consequences. As a matter of fact, it says they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man, birds, animals, and reptiles. Wow. Kent uh, Hughes says it this way. The root word for fools is the same word that we derive our word moron from. I don't want to be called a moron. This is an ugly term which refers not so much to one's intellect as to his moral condition. So we see that first man suppresses the truth about the greatness of God and then he perverts it by worshiping insulting images. He starts worshiping the creation rather than the creator. And then we get things like pantheism which says everything is God and God is everything. And that's where we are right now as a culture. We don't know that but that's what we're actually practicing. In essence, having gotten rid of the true knowledge of God, he worships images with which he is comfortable. The ungodly man begins to worship himself. We become the end. The denial of the truth of God, we are on a fast track down a spiral of sin. I want to move on to the second. If you have wrong thinking, it leads to wrong living. Okay, right thinking doesn't always lead to right living, but at least you know what you're supposed to do. Wrong thinking always leads to wrong living. You're going to make terrible decisions. You just can't, because you don't think straight. You're going to make poor choices. Sin is against the intended nature of humanity. See, God has an intent for us, but we go against what God intends. So we start doing our thing. We destroy God's purposes for ourselves and the world in which he placed us in. We have previously noted sin, you know, sin is always primarily against God. But now it extends into the human family. It becomes against ourselves, and then eventually we'll see it becomes against others. So if God punishes sins, why don't we notice it more? Well, many of us feel that God doesn't really punish sin. Because we look around life and we see so many ungodly people prospering. And isn't that one of the great perplexities of faith when you read Psalm 73, Psalm 37, the book of Job? Why are these unrighteous people doing so good in life? And here I am doing the right thing, and I'm suffering. Isn't that a great question? And I did a whole series on Job that I think kind of answers that question. But I'm not going to answer that today. I'm just leaving it in your head. You're going, yeah, why? However, false worship leads to perverse human behavior, and that behavior is a part of the punishment. So let's look at verse 24. This is not me. I'm just reading what Paul's writing, who is inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. Therefore, God gave them over. I want you to notice that statement, God gave them over. Three times in this chapter, you're going to hear the statement. God says, oh, you want to do that? Okay, go ahead. But every time God gives us over to something, we're going to suffer the end results. There's going to be a consequence. God gave them over in their sinful desires of their heart to sexual impurity. So God has a standard of, of he designed our sexuality. He created us male and female. He created us in his image. Why do you think Satan is trying to dis- distort sexuality today? Because what he's trying to do is distort the image of God in your life. And that's what sin is really all about, is to distort the image of God inside of you. But we don't know that. And then he goes on to say here, so we have sexual impurity. Now, God gave us this beautiful gift of sex, but he designed it in a certain place and for a certain purpose, for our procreation, for our pleasure, to have a lifetime commitment to each other, to work at helping each other as a couple, you know, growing. But here it says, no, they give themselves over. Sex just becomes a tool, 
it, it means that we decide how we're going to use our bodies. And it says, for the degrading of their bodies with one another, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They worshiped and served the created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. And because of this, God gave them over to shameful desires or lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Wow, these are fearful words. John MacArthur points out, God is giving over mankind has a dual sense. First, in an indirect sense, God gave them over simply by withdrawing his restraining and protective hand and allowing the consequence of sin to take its inevitable destructive course. You know, you don't, may not know this, but all civilizations go down this road. It's, it's, it's just the same path over and over again. Sin degrades man, debases the image of God in which he's made, strips him of dignity, peace of mind, a clear conscience. It destroys personal relationships, marriages, families, cities, and nations. It destroys churches. This is just the nature of what sin does. In a second, direct sense, God gives them over. Rebellious mankind by specific acts of judgment. The Bible is replete or filled with accounts of divine wrath being directly and supernaturally poured out on humanity. And we have examples of it in the Bible. What do you think the flood was about in Genesis chapter 6 or the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah? It's because we get so perverse, God finally says, you know what, there's nothing left. And that's exactly what happened to the Canaanites, and that's why God took the Israelites into exile. It was all the same stuff. Every civilization breaks down, folks. This unnatural expression is, is seen here as deviant sexual behavior. So why does Paul use this as an example? I mean, he could have picked on up some other things, but why does he do this? Because he says we're abusing God's design inside of us. You know, Thomas Schreiner, who is a New Testament scholar, he says it this way, uh, probably because it functions as the best illustration of what's unnatural in the sexual sphere. And then he goes on to say, idolatry is unnatural in the sense that it's contrary to God's intention for human beings. To worship corruptible animals and human beings instead of the incorruptible God is to turn the created order upside down. And that's what we continually do. We're turning the, God's design and order upside down. And when you do that, you end up with chaos. You end up losing your freedoms because what happens is you have so much chaos, people can't stand to live in chaos. So what are we going to do? We're going to embrace, and this is where Francis Schaeffer kicks in. He says, we're going to embrace a totalitarian government. We're going to give up all of our freedoms so we can have order again. And how many are noticing life is getting more chaotic? Law and order is falling apart. Crime is rising. Uh, people are afraid. We're even seeing it in our city. People are afraid to go downtown. Why is that? Because crime is escalating, and there just seems to be nobody saying, hey, these things we're not correcting. There's no self-correction and all of a sudden, power just seems to get more widespread, and we're seeing it over and over again. Now, I'm going to say all of this to go on to say this. So, um, let's say this. So, what is Paul saying? That there's no hope for people who have a predisposition of a same-sex attraction. Absolutely not. That's not what he's talking about. And I think a lot of times we misunderstand, and I think the world misunderstands where the church is coming from. I think a lot of Christians misunderstand. And we've been so blindsided by all the movies and you know, all the empathy for people who are struggling with their sexual identity that pretty soon we're just buying into the, to the, uh, under, the world concept. But let me just point out something. And I'm going to say it to you this way. Listen to what Paul says here. 
in Corinthians. He's talking to a church. This, by the way, that culture in the first century was far more denigrated and more perverse than ours is, is currently. But we'll get there if we don't have a revival. We don't have God do something to check it. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Does that all sound bad? That's a vice list. He said, these are the things. You see, it's not that we're bad. It's because why we're bad is because we don't have something good inside of us. God wants to change our hearts. That's what we need to understand. And so look what he says in verse 11. And this is what some of you were, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. What is he saying? You were changed. You had an experience with God. You were regenerated. You were transformed. You were delivered from these things. But now we're in a culture today. Listen to what happens when we play the game live and let live. So the church says, okay, we're just going to go along and say, you know, as far as we're concerned, we're just telling our people this is what they need to live like and the world lives like what they want to. But now the culture is saying to us, oh, no, no, no. We don't want to hear the truth anymore. We want to suppress the truth. Isn't that true? You see, you know, somebody, I've, over, you know, over 38 years as a pastor, there's people come to my office as pastor, I'm struggling with same-sex attraction. I didn't judge them. I don't go, oh, that's terrible. No, we all have a predisposition to sin. They said, what should I do? So then we're talking and we're praying and we're talking about how we could live a life of sexual purity and celibacy. See, we act as if, wow, you can't make people, you can't expect people to live like that, Pastor. Well, the Bible does. As a matter of fact, the last verse I'm going to leave you because I'm running out of time here, I can see that, is simply this. That God says, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. You've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. And then he talks about flee immorality. Now, he's not just talking about homosexuality. He's talking about all sexual behavior outside of marriage. It's got to stop. And we need to understand that. See, our culture gets infuriated with this. And a lot of people get infuriated with this because they say, who does God think that he can tell me how to control my own body? Well, if you're your own God... You're going to do your own thing, and you're going to suffer your own consequences. All I'm saying is if I'm a child of God, and I've given my life to him, he has, he has authority and dominion over every aspect of my life, including my sexuality, okay? And including how I should be thinking, the purity of my thoughts. All of those things belong to God. Here's my deep concern right now. You know right now in the cities of Alberta, municipalities are making rulings on banning conversion therapy. Anybody heard of this? Okay, so in 2015, the Canadian Psychological Association defined it, okay? And basically, their definition, let me move on here, I think it's up here, mm. oh. They've expanded the definition significantly in the ways that should concern us as Christians. Uh, see, the culture believes every individual is absolutely sovereign over their own sexuality, the result is that when Christians say that God has a plan for our sexuality, that we need to listen to him, it goes against much of what the culture believes. That's true, isn't it? You are not sovereign, God is. And this, cult, this includes your sexuality. Our culture seems to find this message not just objectionable, but infuriating. So basically what they're saying is, uh, well, I thought I had written this down. Oh, yeah, I have it here. 
It says the definition in 2015 was simply any formal therapeutic attempt to change the sexual orientation of a bisexual, gay, and lesbian individual to heterosexuality. But the ban that was recently passed in Edmonton expanded that definition to include the changing of a person's sexual orientation, gender identity, gender expression, or gender preference, or eliminating or reproducing sexual attraction or sexual behavior between a person of the same sex. In other words, they basically are saying, if someone came to me as a pastor right now and said, you know, pastor, I'm struggling with my sexual feelings, and, you know, I know what God's word says, and I want to please God, would you pray for me? The fact that I would even encourage them in that direction eventually will be against the law. That's pretty, that's where we're going. And you say, why are they doing that? Why would they even consider doing this, Pastor? Because if you can experience the transforming power of God and accept your sexuality and submit it and, and let God be sovereign over your sexuality, that flies in the face of what they're teaching everybody in our culture. Because they would rather believe a lie than accept the truth. And so now they're suppressing the truth. Okay, I'm gonna stop. Let's stand. <clears throat> so much more could be said on this topic, but I'm just introducing it to you because I believe that we're at an interesting place in our culture. And, you know, I'm not gonna say all my discussions who I've been talking to in our city, but I'll just say this. Our, it's, it's actually up for discussion in the city of Red Deer because now it becomes a political thing, and Monday night there'll be a vote, and I, know, I personally know that the councilors are divided on this issue. Like some of the municipalities, they've just unanimously accepted it. Not so in Red Deer, there's a division. But unfortunately, at this point, it seems like this probably will pass, knowing the different viewpoints on that, that situation. My prayer is that if one person changes their mind, Red will be the first municipality that doesn't go along with it. That would be amazing. But I'm saying to you, folks, when we suppress the truth, and it's not just about sexuality, read the last verses in that chapter. You're going to find out what happens when we reject God. We become haters. It says so. We become haters of God. We become haters of that which is good. And we're just going to simply violate one another and we're really destroying ourselves and you know what the sad part is three times in that text God says and he gave them up to it God has not stepped in in these civilizations and said oh okay no he's let people destroy themselves because in a sense that was a judgment right and you can see that and I'm concerned you say why are you concerned pastor because I have beautiful children and I have beautiful grandchildren and they're going to grow up in a culture that's got a lot less freedom in it than what I've enjoyed. You know, some of us are planning, we wanted to go to France here in the fall here and go to Juneau Beach. And I think of the sacrifice that these young people made to give our nation this amazing freedom. And yet, in our lack of understanding, thinking ourselves to be wise, we're making morally deficient decisions that's going to eradicate the freedoms to which we've so long enjoyed. There's going to be such a suppression of truth that we're all going to suffer. And so you say, well, is there any hope, Pastor? Of course there's hope. 
you know, I think we need to be, we, we need to say, God, first of all, forgive us for being so lax and not presenting the gospel to our neighbors and not having the experience of knowing Christ's forgiveness and having this transforming grace come into our lives. And, you know, so many people are tormented in, in their lives in so many areas. I'm not just going to talk about sex. I'm talking about so many areas of their life so tormented that to know the truth that can set you free, to know this God who loves us with an everlasting love, who is willing to walk with us through life's most challenging moments and be there for us and help allow a change to happen from within our lives, this transforming power of God's grace to change us into someone he designed us to become, which is like him, loving, forgiving, kind, concerned, serving. Isn't that amazing? I want people to know this love. I want our city to know it. I want, I want our world to know the goodness of Almighty God. I want our cultures, not just Canadian culture, I want them all to be free, to really know the true and the living God. And yet I know that ultimately at the end, if we can't get our act together, I'm so thankful that Jesus is gonna come back and rescue our planet, hallelujah. He's gonna do it. And that's my hope, my hope is in him. It's not in another system, another government, another promise. It's in the one when he says he's going to do it, he's going to do it. So let's pray today. Can we agree together and say, Lord, if my thinking has been wrong on this, would you change it? Would you help me to get in line with where your word is at? Lord, maybe I've listened so strongly to the culture around me that I've actually drank the Kool-Aid and I've imbibed it and I've bought it. And I'm standing up against you here and you're going, Pastor, you're so radical. You're, you're an old dinosaur. You're a fossil. You're not in touch with the new realities. Let me tell you something. I'm in touch with God's reality and I've studied history and I've seen how all this plays out over and over and over again. And I'm standing up here like, like a watchman on a wall and I'm saying, there's a tide coming against our city and I'm sounding a trumpet and warning us that if we are not paying attention, this city will be overrun because the truth will have been suppressed and we'll have lost our freedoms. I know this is radical thinking for some of you because you probably have never heard this before, but this is the truth. Study this chapter. Study what I just said. I'm not making this up, folks. The Bible is true. And it works over and over and over again. So, Father, I come to you this morning. I know that you're speaking into our lives. I know some people are struggling with this. Maybe there's some that are offended today. But I realize how powerful the truth is. It's the truth that sets us free, and when we suppress it, it leads to bondage. And it's my prayer today that you'd set captives free. It's my prayer today that you'd release us from ignorance. You'd release us from the lies of the enemy. That you would give us insight into the way you see life and how you see us under your sovereignty and that we are willing to submit even our bodies to you and say, Lord, I give you authority and right to have sovereign control over my body. And that means I have to make choices that honor you. And it's not just about me. And Lord, there's a freedom that comes into that life. And I'm praying this morning. That's, you know, I was just thinking of that image of that little boy that was dead on that briar. Lord, when the prince of life comes and touches death, he raises the dead. And my prayer today is that you're gonna raise our, the places in our soul that are dead. You're gonna awaken something in our hearts and minds. You're gonna resurrect us, Lord, from these places of death and bring life into those places 
And we thank you for that, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you as you leave this morning.